Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. In this episode of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, we're sharing a recap of one of our more popular educational informative events that we do during the year, which is our 2024 Market Outlook webinar featuring regular Wealthy Behavior Podcast guest host, Bob Weiss, Chief Investment Officer at Heritage Financial, and Brad Long, Chief Investment Officer from Investment Consultant Fiducian Advisors, talking about our expectations for stock and bond market returns in 2024 as well as other asset classes and answering some questions that we've received in advance timely based on what's going on in the market. I hope you enjoyed the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2024 Heritage Market Outlook. I'm Bob Weiss, Chief Investment Officer at Heritage Financial, and I'm here today with Brad Long, the Chief Investment Officer at Fiducian Advisors. For those of you who don't know, Fiducian is an investment consultant that Heritage works with. And one of the uh, main um, projects that we work on with Fiducient is uh, capital market assumptions, which are long-term uh, market forecasts and relate to market outlooks and our process for portfolio construction. And today, Brad is going to walk us through some slides relating to their recently released uh, 2024 capital market assumptions. Uh, before I hand it off to Brad, just quick heritage financial at a glance. Uh, about $2.5 in assets under management, clients in 36 states, 44 employees. Our mission statement that, that we live to every day is make a positive and lasting financial impact on the people in our lives and those we serve. So with that, Brad, I'll hand it over to you. All right. Well, good morning and thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Um, well, you know, we're going to go through pretty quickly a couple of quick things. First, we're going to look in the rearview mirror and talk a little bit about how we position portfolios, and I know Bob is going to follow through on you know some of the things we did in calendar year 23. Turn our gaze to 2024, uh, do a quick run through the economy, and then talk about our portfolio positioning and capital market assumptions. So, <clears throat> starting a bit in the rearview mirror, looking at 2023, as we you know we're sitting here kind of this time or even earlier in 2022, looking forward to 2022 or 2023. There was really three themes we thought we'd be driving markets. The first was persistent volatility, moderating inflation at a bear market bottom. And, you know, at that time as well, if you remember, it was it was a period of time in which it was almost ubiquitous amongst economists and prognosticators. Hey, there's going to be recession in 2023. It's an inevitability. The question is when, not if, um, you know, here we are sitting in January of 24 and recession was certainly uh, not in the cards for 2023. So what did the markets miss? You know, it seems like probably that middle box there of moderating inflation is really what led heavily to, you know, the market rally and a bear market bottom and a lot of glad handing and backslapping at the Fed for success and in moving inflation uh, in the right direction. So as we move our gaze to 2024, uh, we think there's a couple of key themes that are really going to be driving markets. Uh, the first theme is what we're calling the messy middle, right? So we've had the success of moving inflation from you know, call it the 9% range in 22, you know, down to the 3% range where we are today. Now, the last mile is always the hardest. That's moving from where we are today to the Fed's target of 2%. You know, without getting into too much detail, we think 
Somewhat of the 2% is a misnomer, right? And somewhat of a false target. Uh, but nonetheless, we think that there's important inferences between this range of 2 and 5% of what that means to the Fed and Fed policy that could be moving rates lower. And we'll talk about more of that uh, in a moment and what it means to asset prices. The second is a little bit of a nod to that kind of uh, inevitability of recession, you know, materially shifting portfolios and this idea of kind of prepare, not predict. You know, one, we don't think anyone can really market time, um, you know, it, so it remains futile, but we can build resilient portfolios that we think can weather potential volatility. And we'll talk more about where that volatility may be coming from. Um, and speaking of that, uh, concentrated consequences is our third theme. So this idea that, you know, so much of the success of the headline S&P figures that we've seen in 2023 have really come from quite literally just a handful of stocks. Um, you know, they've been dubbed kind of the Magnificent Seven, uh, if you've seen them in the, in the media. And, you know, I read a, just an incredible stat the other day. So just these seven securities. So just as a reminder, that's Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, which is Facebook, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Microsoft, right? So almost on one hand, um, just those seven securities are larger than the combined market cap of all of the companies in France, Japan, China and the UK combined, which is just astounding, right? And look, there are incredible companies doing incredible things, uh, but that's somewhat uh, almost staggering and, and something we may not see again uh, in history. So, punching forward to you know where you know we'll, we'll be we'll be digging into each of these a little bit more in a moment, uh, but just talking about on, on a net basis where are we uh, most interested in 2024. So, fixed income, we think can and will play a very interesting role in portfolios for 2024. You know, it's certainly recharged relative to the last decade or so where interest rates have been really punitive, very low forward-looking expectations. Now, frankly, we can own fixed income and expect to earn a reasonable rate of return, but we're also trying to dispel some of the fear that was created in 2022, which created, um, you know, kind of duration or interest rate risk as a dirty word. Um, we think in 2024, that could start to shift. And then this idea of, you know, very narrow leadership, right, here in the United States with technology stocks, uh, just a handful of securities, that creates both opportunity and fragility. And so we'll talk a little bit about small cap stocks. We'll talk a little bit about uh, global and international uh, and kind of punch forward. But, you know, we do, um, you know, before we get into our portfolio allocations, you know, part of the big conversation in 2023 was really the no-show no of a recession. Um, so we'll go through a quick economic outlook and just kind of set the tone and tenor of, you know, what we think that means for portfolios uh, and then dive into some of that portfolio positioning in, in Bob's updates. So first here on the no show for 2023. So this is probably one of the graphs, you know, one of a handful. There's probably a dozen or so that really tripped up economists, you know, economists uh, constantly trying to peer into their crystal balls, look forward and say, you know, what's coming down the pike? Well, leading economic uh, indicators, right? LEI, as opposed to lagging economic indicators, which is kind of a rear view mirror, um, you know, type data point, are ones that tend to tend to be more predictive of future economic outcomes. And so, you know, above zero here, you see economic expansion. The gray bars here are recession. And when this number, uh, these numbers are dropping and falling, you tend to see that preceding economic uh, weakness. So a lot of economists in 2022 and 2023 were saying, hey, here it comes. Here comes the recession. 
it's inevitability. And you can stack this up with a hand, many other uh, data points, you know, one of which we heard a lot about was the inverted yield curve. Yet here we stand in 2024, uh, and 2023 is a very robust year. So what gives? Where did where did this go wrong? What gives is the consumer. The consumer well outspent expectations in 2023. And remember, two-thirds of the US economy is driven by consumption. And so, you know, when you talk about the consumer, we naturally talk about jobs and we talk about um, you know, the labor market. And that has been one area that, you know, remains robust. And there's no disagreement with that. There's certainly uh, been a robust uh, economic backdrop. We've seen real wages grow. We've seen employment, unemployment remain extraordinarily low. But as we talk about what's uh, important to allocations and trying to think about kind of driving, uh, you know, by looking forward, we need to think about what's a leading and lagging uh, data. And so employment data, while it has been robust, is is a classically lagged data. So I'll use the analogy of driving in a car. Right. So lagged data is driving by looking in the rearview mirror. Coincidental data or coincident data is like kind of looking out the side view window. And leading economic data is, you know, trying to look out the windshield and drive the car here. Well, what we're looking at is, you know, looking back to 1948 and the non-farm payroll. So this is how you would judge uh, employment. And you can see when you rewind the clock, you know, one, two, three quarters or just prior uh, to a recession, uh, the employment position remains strong, right? So three quarters prior to a recession, you have 415,000 jobs on average created over the quarter. You know, two quarters before, 267, and you see that slowly dip. All of a sudden, one quarter after, you know, negative 213, two, negative uh, 392, right? So that those figures flip quickly. And it may come to surprise uh, some, but it's because it's that lagged nature of data. So again, as we look at you know, kind of the, the previous uh, chart, you know, that's more of a, you know, in the red, yellow, green light economy, right, of a stoplight. It's kind of a yellow light data chart. Um, you know, this uh, on the employment basis, right, is telling us a bit more of a yellow light story as well. And so the chart we have up here is instead of looking at just those figures, right, let's look at the trend of those figures. And again, trying to simplify this chart, anything above zero is saying, hey, a little bit of a warning here. We're basically losing uh, more jobs than we previously had. Anything below zero is saying, hey, we're adding more jobs than we previously had. And so we have economic growth. Now, no perfect uh, indicator of, of a potential recession it exists. Frankly, if it did, we'd all just follow that. And, you know, really, Bob and I wouldn't need to have a job. Um, but as we look at these figures, right, they start to tell us, hey, you know, again, in that red, yellow, green light uh, framework, there's potential. Uh, for economic weakness. So, you know, in summary, as we look across the economy, just because a recession was a no-show in 2023 doesn't mean that the risks don't remain in 2024. But again, that's not something that as we build allocations, we're building portfolios, we're not trying to time uh, recessions. But what it helps us do is helps us set tone and build probabilities around things that are important for our positioning and asset allocation. So obviously, economic weakness or strength is one of the things the Fed is focused on. Also, inflation is one of the things the Fed's focused on. And that helps them set their dual mandate, helps them set uh, uh, policy. So how accommodative or restrictive would they be? And that's a big conversation in the market right now is, 
you know, what is the Fed going to be doing? Are they going to be increasing interest rates, decreasing interest rates, staying, uh, staying pat where they are today? So before we even start to have the discussion on what's the Fed going to do, we kind of have to figure out where they are today. Um, what we're looking at here is the effective funds rate. So it's the Fed's policy rate, less their favorite version of inflation. And it gives you a sense of how, how much their foot is on the gas or on the brake of the economy. So when the line is above zero here, that means that their foot is on the brake. You know, in the higher the line, the harder they're uh, stepping on the brake. And when you know we're below the line, their foot's on the gas, right? They're trying to accelerate the economy. Now, the Marianas Trench, if you will, that deep fall in that line, that is both when the Fed was in a very accommodative position and inflation took off post-COVID, and then that rocket uh, up, that is both the Fed in 2022 um, you know, really chasing uh, kind of their tail when being behind the curve on inflation and uh, inflation falling. So interest rates rising and inflation falling. So today, you know, we have real rates that sit, you know, in kind of the call it depending because inflation in, uh, has been moving, you know, in the twos or threes. Um, but, uh, you know, since uh, 1948, the average real rate from the Fed is about 1%. So, even if we don't go into a recession, right, which is where a lot of this rate cut conversation happens, um, we could have something like a soft landing, right, where you have uh, inflation moderate, you have um, you have unemployment, uh, employment remains strong, and then economic growth continue. You know, that's that classic soft landing. So as we look at this data cumulatively, right, this idea of the messy middle of inflation and kind of a range bound scenario. We have that call it yellow light economy, certainly no guarantee of economic weakness, but certainly not kind of uh, materially robust and growing. We think that uh, develops multiple paths for the Fed potentially to move lower. And that has a, a lot of important inferences to us on assets we want to own, which assets and how we position for 2024. The only other thing we'd mention here is kind of bottom right is, you know, since uh, the in the fourth quarter, the market has really built up its expectations around a Fed cut happening in March. We would just kind of be leery of that and really, you know, betting the farm there. Honestly, if you're looking for a rate cut, it probably already happened. The market's moved ahead of that idea. And the Fed um, is certainly leery of the idea of moving rates too early. Because as we mentioned, the unemployment or the employment uh, picture still remains strong. And so, you know, they know that if they start cutting rates too early, the risk of inflation moving higher uh, becomes much greater. And so they'll probably be more patient. But nonetheless, as we look to, you know, overall, again, trying to get into this idea of prepare, not predict, but also just say embrace the inevitable, right? Recessions, uh, market volatility, those are a common uh, part of markets. Recessions since 1950 have happened about every six and a half years. And so, I guess in theory, right? A recession is always coming. So we're never trying to bet or time whether uh, it's coming or not. We're trying to position portfolios you know, based on current market outcomes. So with that, why don't we jump into quickly into portfolio positioning? Uh, and then Bob, I know uh, we can certainly take questions along the way if they're coming in the queue or we can get um, you know, to them uh, towards the end. Yeah, just just a reminder for our participants, you can use the Q&A function in Zoom and we'll We'll see the questions as they come in and we'll answer them either at the end or as we go, depending on, on how they fit. Thank you. Perfect.
So, you know, we, we give a bit of the punchline here on, you know, our interest in fixed income, you know, small caps and global. Here's a little bit more of the, the granular details, if you will, um, in which we'll get into, you know, most, but not all of these subcomponents, just given the amount of time uh, we have. So first is around fixed income. You know, we mentioned, you know, just fixed income and aggregate, right, is, is, a, is now an asset relative to the last decade that is far more attractive than it's been in a long time. It can pr- provide resiliency to potential concerns or volatility and weakness. Uh, but not all fixed income is built alike. So we like uh, kind of higher quality, intermediate duration fixed income at the expense of, which is something we very much liked uh, last year, is high yield bonds. We just don't think that we're uh, earning uh, the same uh, amount in those spaces. Um, and frankly, there's a little bit more risk embedded there, which we'll get in in just a moment. And then moving over to global equity, you know, we still think there's a lot of opportunity here uh, outside of just you know, not just a handful of securities or just U.S. technology, but just U.S. large cap stocks. Um, so small cap, which we'll get into non-U.S., et cetera. So why don't we punch into uh, fixed income? Because it's probably one of the bigger, call it, you know, year over year opportunities. And, you know, as we uh, noted, we think there's multiple paths lower uh, for the Fed to move interest rates lower. Now, could they move interest rates higher? Sure. But that would really be predicated on inflation accelerating probably above 4%, maybe even 5% for them to really get back on that horse. So the left side of this graph is what you know different tenors of inf- uh, uh, fixed income look like if interest rates rise. The right side of this graph is what potential returns look like if interest rates fall. So the middle bar here is the Barclays US aggregate. That's called the, you know, the, the S&P of fixed income. Now, if interest rates uh, fall by, you know, call it 100 basis points, you know, that could mean a potential total return of, you know, over 10% or a double digit return on fixed income. So that's an equity like return with a high quality, lower uh, volatility asset. So that is something that we're interested in where we can build uh, return into the portfolio uh, without having to take on more risk. And just to give a sense of kind of the coil that's in that spring, so Bob, if you uh, moved uh, slightly forward here, so you know in the fourth quarter alone, right, interest rates, um, the expectations around interest rates shifted, and interest rates started to fall. So the the AG, the Bloomberg AG, returned six point eight in the fourth quarter alone. Now cash, which has kind of been the cash versus bonds, uh, you know, mantra of twenty three, returned one point four percent. So it was also positive. You know, but almost a 5.4% outperformance in just the fourth quarter. So you can get a sense of kind of the, the potential coil that's in that spring, that if the Fed were to cut, um, what that could mean to, to fixed income. And just to give some historical context, you know, in a soft landing scenario, you know, the Fed could move maybe 50 or 75 basis points. You know, and if you have more of a, like a typical recession, um, you know, the Fed could cut as much as call it 250 basis points over 18 months. So there's you know, a lot of potential for movement there. Now, conversely, uh, across high yield, um, you know, high yield has been a great asset. It's been one that we've owned in portfolios and has been beneficial. Um, but, you know, today where it's priced, it's just less attractive, which is fine, right? As the facts change, our opinions change. And so the line you're looking at here is what's called the spread of high yield. So it's basically the percentage or the yield above what's considered risk-free, which is the treasury. Now, we can debate if that's a risk-free asset or not. That's a conversation for another day. 
Uh, but today you're only earning, call it three and a quarter. So that's the 323 above the risk-free rate. Um, historically, if you look at, you know, when, when rates were around that level, you know, actually investing in high yield underperformed uh, higher quality bonds by about 2% on an annualized basis three years forward. Now, if you were to say, well, it's not just exactly where it is today, it's going to bounce around between there and average, which is about, you know, just under four, you know, 472. Um, you know, and Bob, if you advance just slightly, uh, the stats will pull up on the bottom here. Um, you know, you would actually, uh, you know, just barely outperform, but probably not, uh, you know, a, to a level interesting enough to take on that additional risk. Now, conversely, where we start to get really interested, where spreads are around 600 or so, you know, the outperformance there of high yield is almost five and a half on a three or four basis. So again, it's more of uh, as the facts change, you know, our opinion changes and we try to lean into things where we think opportunity presents itself. Uh, and today, high yield is just uh, a bit more rich. And so our interest lies more on the investment grade side, which we just discussed. Now, as we move uh, a bit to small caps um, and, and uh, U.S. equities here, um, it's been a pretty interesting run for small caps. So if you were to orient, I know there's a lot going on in this chart. So if you were to orient around kind of the zero line in the middle of this chart, um, you know, that's to show you a kind of a typical bear market bottom. Uh, you know, and, th and this uh, data uh, really goes uh, goes back, uh, let's see, to the 19, I think it's 1997 or no, 1987. Um, and it shows kind of the, the path of returns for small caps following uh, a bear market bottom. Well, you can see this, you know, line that's bumping along the bottom here is our current path, which is, you know, small caps have really not rallied since the October low of 2022, where on average, you know, you see that kind of dark line across the middle, uh, it has, you know, on average moved up and there's a lot of daylight in between those two. Part of that um, has, is the makeup small caps. And part of that has been the incredible success uh, of large caps. So if we unpack that a little bit more, you know, we think there's a lot of reasons that small caps are interesting today. You know, one, it's not just valuation. Uh, small caps are certainly trading in evaluation, but it's also around the composition. So as we talk about uh, concentrated consequences, right? So the handful of securities, largely US large cap growth or technology oriented securities, you know, the S&P 500, about a third of that index is made up of technology stocks today. Simply by owning something other than the S&P, like small caps, we're actually uh, diversifying our exposure and owning many other sectors that haven't benefited as much in the recent rally. Um, we think that that can certainly add, uh, you know, a lot of additional, uh, you know, potential uh, in portfolios. But speaking of valuation, right? So the MAG seven, you know, uh, those seven securities on average up over a hundred percent in 2023. Um, you know, if we look at large growth, and we're picking on large growth because that's really where the Mag Seven most of them live. They're a te they're a technology, uh, you know, most in the technology sector. You know, that cohort of large growth trades at one hundred and forty percent, so above uh, its twenty-year valuation. So they traded about twenty-six and a half versus their twenty-year valuation of nineteen. Now. That's obviously, so they're expensive. And in some ways you could say, well, maybe they're worth it. Um, the only other thing I'd mention there is that's been an expensive 20 years, right? The last 15 years, large growth has had a lot of success. So it's not as if we're 
comparing this to a period in time in which large cap growth materially underperformed, and now it looks expensive. It looks expensive because it is expensive. Um, now, also, as we talk about the S&P, we all, we own large cap uh, in our portfolios. So it is important to break down the S&P uh, into you know, some of those sub cohorts. So if you look at just the top 10 stocks in the S&P, you know, which seven of which are made in the MAG7, you know, they traded about 27 times. So that's expensive uh, relative to the rest of the S&P, which trades at about 17 times. Um, you know, so there is, uh, you know, there is kind of still opportunity in the S&P. It's just hard to kind of out earn those higher multiples. And so as we're building a diversified and robust portfolio, we want to make sure that we're you know, kind of taking advantage of some of those discrepancies. And so, Fred, Fred, on this chart, we didn't include the legend. Um, dark blue is large cap, and the lighter blue is small cap. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Question just came in on that. Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, the the large cap is the S and P five hundred, and the light blue is small cap, which is proxied by the Russell two thousand. Um, so maybe in summary, quickly, just so we can uh, also jump to questions here on the next slide. So you know. In uh, positioning from kind of year over year, uh, from 23 to 24. So high quality fixed income, certainly of interest. We discussed kind of the rationale of why there, uh, not just current yields being attractive, uh, but also the opportunity for multiple paths lower in a fairly benign inflation environment, uh, creates a lot of interest there. You know, the second, you know, underweight high yield credit we talked about, uh, you know, just being compensated for the risk that you're taking. And if you're not, being compensated for that risk, then don't take that risk. And so, you know, having our opinions change to some degree as the facts uh, change and the opportunity set changes. Um, the third, you know, maintaining uh, or overweight to small caps. So we just discussed, hey, there's an opportunity there, not just by rotating uh, from kind of a, a concentrated sector perspective and owning just a lot of US technology stocks, but on a relative valuation basis. Um, you know, we certainly think that there still is compelling opportunity there. Uh, fourth, you know, maintaining our way to non-US. We didn't really get into that uh, here, which we can if we'd uh, like to, mostly based on time. But you know, this notion of, uh, you know, hey, the United States has been the preeminent market uh, from a return perspective, you know, now, uh, you know, 15 or more years running post GFC. Um, will that maintain as if history remains a precedent? Uh, it certainly won't, but that's not a thing we can time in a, in a quarter or a year. But we do think that there are a lot of opportunities uh, remaining outside the United States. And then the final getting back to that kind of component of humility uh, and market timing, you know, we can build a portfolio that we think can, uh, you know, prepare us for whatever may lie ahead. Could there be a recession in 24? Potentially, right? If someone went through some of the kind of yellow light economy statistics, um, but it's not something we have to predict, right? Rather, we would uh, use the opportunity to take advantage of some of the relative valuation that we see existing, the yields within fixed income, kind of build that high quality and robust portfolio where we're not reliant on trying to time markets. Um, so I know we'll probably have, we got a couple of other things, Bob, that we want to cover. Um, you know, if you do, we could probably jump over these and we could jump straight into uh, you know, some of the updates if you'd want, Bob. Yeah, let's just run through this um, quickly at a high level. Okay. I think this so as a, as a very quick uh, reminder, so as Bob mentioned, we work uh, with Heritage to help build 10-year uh, forward-looking uh, market forecasts. Uh, you know, so these are the year-over-year -year changes here. So you can see across 
uh, U.S. equity international emerging, largely going down, um, you know, across the equity cohort, a little bit more outside the United States, but still over the long term, we think uh, higher and compelling opportunity uh, across the real assets uh, cohort actually increasing here. So even though we think inflation would be range bound, especially given some of the subcomponents of these assets that underperformed in 23, you know, it, it is uh, remains kind of a compelling environment for for real assets. And again, kind of that rocky road or the last mile is the hardest. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in the mix that could easily help uh, inflation accelerate and having exposure to these in their intermediate term uh, may help. For those of you all that own, uh, you know, alternatives like marketable alternatives or, or uh, you know, hedge funds or private equity, um, you know, a lot of compelling opportunity, especially uh, in the back of volatility. And then, you know, going forward, one more page here, you know, across fixed income, we noted, you know, hey, a compelling opportunity remaining uh, for a whole host of reasons. Now, again, even though our high yield bond alloc- uh, forecast here is going up, most of the reason that's going up is because uh, interest rates have gone up and treasuries have gone up, but the compensation for taking on that additional risk has gone down. Uh, so as you kind of roll all that into the soup, that's what gives you kind of your year over year changes. So in short, equity uh, dipping slightly, fixed income increasing, alternatives remain compelling, as do real assets. Uh, and that those are inputs that help set uh, allocations that thoughtfully build into you know portfolios and plans. Thanks, Brad. So transitioning into heritage client portfolios, how did we navigate 2023? We went into 2023 aggressively, excited about prospective stock returns. So at the beginning of the year or in late 2022, we increased the stock allocation for most clients and increased the bond allocation a little bit, uh, but overall dialed up risk. Um, And then as the year went on, um, stocks started the year off uh, pretty strong by mid-year. Um, they were up double digits. So we started to rebalance back to a more normal position. And in doing so, um, at a, for a second time, we added to bonds. And then later in the year, in Q4 of 2023, we started to trim real assets. Um, I should say, again, trimmed real assets. We did that earlier in the year, too, to, to add to stocks and bonds. Uh, but in private markets where uh, we think valuations have held up much better than public markets. We trimmed real assets and and that mostly went um, to bonds. So over the course of 2023, we added to bonds on a number of occasions, a number of occasions um, so that we're starting 2024 uh, more cautiously positioned with a healthy fixed income allocation. So if there's maybe one main takeaway from the slides that Brad went over and from our points, it's that if you if you're to look at your portfolio once a year, say January 1st, 2023, and then January 17th, 2024, um, as far as changes that one should consider, it's it's leaning into bonds a little bit more because yields have gone up. As you saw on the capital market assumption side, all the bond returns are up. And then on the stock side, um, stock returns are down. So it's just shifting the weights just a little bit, a few percentage um, move uh, from stocks to bonds. Um, and then to get a little bit more granular, uh, this is looking at uh, value and growth investing. So in the U.S. market, we have a number of different lines here. Uh, this gray line is the, the price to book ratio of the U.S. growth index. And you can see it's up here um, close to 10. And it, if what's interesting is if you look, it's, it's actually higher than it was at the tech bubble in 1999 or early 2000. So other than um, right around 2020 when valuation spiked, 
we're, we're near all-time highs in uh, growth stocks. And then down below, you have the valuation of value stocks, which is pretty low as value stocks uh, normally trade. Uh, but the spread between the two, so subtracting uh, growth minus value, you see it's it's above the, the, the long-term average, um, the, the orange line here, and it's above the 10-year average um, here. So in the US, growth looks expensive relative to value. Now, looking at emerging market equity through the same lens, you, you, there's actually a different conclusion. So here you see um, the growth value spread. I'll just jump to the, the um, blue line. And you can see it was high back around 2019-2020, so value was cheap. And emerging market value has outperformed emerging market growth by a, a good amount over the last three years. And as such, uh, the spread has come down. So now it's below the 10-year average and, and closer to the long-term average. So as far as a, a takeaway and something we're doing in client portfolios as a result of this, uh, we are in, in the U.S. maintaining positioning, tilting towards value stocks rather than growth stocks, tilting towards small cap stocks that Brad mentioned. In emerging markets, we had been overweight in value stocks and we're uh, reducing value and increasing growth. So bringing more value growth balance in emerging markets. Now that value's performed so well for uh, the last three years in emerging markets. So that, that's something a little more granular that we'll be doing. Um, as a reminder, uh, the Q&A function's available and we do have some questions that we'll get to. And there's a number of resources on our website. Uh, we have a heritage blog, this webinars, videos, our Wealthy Behavior podcast. We have uh, typically two podcast episodes a month. So a ton of information on our website. And if you're interested in working with us or learning more about Heritage, you can contact us a number of ways, such as emailing us at letstalkatheritagefinancial.net or phone numbers on the screen. Um, so moving on to Q&A, um, we have some questions that have come in. Um, thoughts on commercial real estate market and their investors slash banks. Uh, Brad, you want to take that one? Sure, let me come off mute. Yeah, I think this is... Uh... It's certainly been a big topic of conversation since kind of the the mix up of post COVID, uh, and I think when most speak about commercial real estate, they're probably in concern. They're more acutely speaking about office, right? Because uh, commercial real estate is a very uh, diverse and wide set of uh, of businesses, right? But if if the question is more specifically geared towards office. Um, there's no question office is struggling. Um, you know, they, the amount of supply that's come online, the demand mostly from the reshift and orientation of uh, individuals going into the office and the frequency uh, of which they're attending, and then also what that means to the per square foot you need per employee and how often they're coming in. That being said, when you actually start to dig into, you know, because office uh, as, as, a, as a percentage of commercial real estate in total, is only about 16%. Um, and then if you look at you know office in particular and the debt that's coming due, because you, you mentioned, I think the question linked to banks, um, you know only 4.2% of that debt is actually uh, maturing in the calendar year 2024. So don't get me wrong, office is probably gonna be a little bit like the, the regional malls of the next 10 years, right? Office has to figure out a new home and, and what to do. Um, but is it going to be this kind of catastrophic event that all of a sudden creeps up and, and blows up? Probably not. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to proportion the potential issue and not commingle office with commercial real estate, which is a big 
vast, uh, diversified group of, of properties. Yeah, th thanks, Brad. I think you're right. The, the person asking the question was probably thinking about office, but on the, the flip side, I like to remind clients that in commercial real estate, you have multifamily, which are apartments, and multifamily is done well. Because if you, you think about single family homes, prices have gone up a lot and people have to live somewhere. So apartments have done well. And then industrial and commercial, that's also done well. So that's like warehouses. If you think about e-commerce, uh, Amazon fulfillment centers, that, that's a booming area in real estate. So commercial real estate really is mixed with um, office and, and retail being on the weaker end. And then um, industrial and multifamily, also life sciences have, have been really strong. Uh, we have another question here about election year potential outcomes as well as emerging conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, uh, are those factored into the CMAs? Uh, if not, how do you feel historically this may affect the US slash global economy? Yeah, so uh, it is factored in. Um, so coming into 2023, actually, so this would be rewinding the clock to 2022. So remember, Russia had just invaded Ukraine. We had the first uh, you know, ground war in Europe we've seen since World War II. You can see, note, international equity includes a 15% haircut implemented in 2022. That was on the basis of kind of the rising geopolitical risks, uh, you know, associated uh, really around the globe. Uh, but, you know, at the time that was acutely in Europe. Uh, now we have an expanding and potential conflict, uh, uh, you know, additional conflict in the Middle East, which is also moving beyond those borders and into international waters, as we've seen with the Suez Canal and the Straits of Hormuz. So, you know, it is included in there. That being said, um, this is not the first time there has been conflict, either in a military, uh, geopolitical, or other sense. Um, you know, we've been through uh, many wars. We've been through many uh, trade tariffs and and uh, you know geopolitical tensions, um, and you know markets uh, ebb and flow throughout. Right. So um, it is. It's a, it's a potential and acute concern, um, but it's not one that. Uh, has tended to kind of overwhelm the direction uh, or potential opportunity. So it's more of a on the edge item than it is in the driver's seat. Okay, thank you. Um, and just moving on to some questions that were submitted in advance. Uh, what impact does the Fed have in your views for the short term, one to three years for the stock and bond markets? A little trickier, I know, uh, making short term forecasts. Yeah, look, the uh, the Fed has been the game in town in the last couple of years. Um, you know, so uh, inflation is the driving hand of the Fed, um, and the Fed has been kind of a driving hand in markets. It was the primary uh, driver of prices in 2022, and almost mostly the speculation of what the Fed would be or be doing uh, was a primary driver uh, in 2023. Now. The Fed is is an important factor, and we I mean we mentioned we probably dedicated ten percent of our discussion today to the Fed and multiple paths lower and, and decreasing interest rates and what that means to fixed income and equities. Um, so it's important, uh, but we also don't want to put too much uh, focus on just the Fed. Um, you know, especially for stocks, right? Earnings matter. Uh, abilities for companies to generate revenue and have an expense structure that actually creates positive economic value, that matters over time. Um, earnings expectations for 2024 are earnings growth of about 12%. That's a pretty rosy picture uh, from the sell side. Maybe a little too rosy, which we can get into in a, 
at, at another point. But the Fed is important. They kind of, let's call it, they set the tone. Um, and they have a very direct and acute impact on fixed income and a, uh, uh, indirect impact on equities. Um, but they're not the only game in town when it comes to the one or three year forecast. Thanks, Brad. Um, maybe one last question, unless any more come in. Um, it says, should I convert my traditional IRA to a Roth before retirement age? I'm 63 years old now. What are the potential benefits? So I'll, I'll take this one and uh, we need more information. I, I can't uh, give advice with, with um, that, but just in general, uh, doing Roth conversions um, can make sense for individuals, especially in what you call a gap years. So in your working years where you have a, a you know, W-2 paycheck, um, you might be in a mid to high tax bracket. Then if you retire on the earlier side, you'll have years of lower income before you start collecting social security and taking IRA distributions, required minimum distributions. So in those gap years where your taxable income is very low, um, a planning strategy is to convert the IRA into a Roth IRA. And the Roth bucket's nice because you never pay taxes on it. And at Heritage, we have financial planning software that'll project out every year for rest of your life. And um, we'll optimize around that. And it's really a two-part question. Um, should I do it? And then if so, how much should I convert each year? So that's something we, we help clients with all the time. So I'd encourage the uh, participant who asked that to uh, reach out to someone. And one more question came in. Any thoughts on the potential impact of the election, either with the same or new presidential results? So, that one. yeah, so pre presidential elections, you know, statistically, um, the years of presidential elections, uh, they tend to be uh, slight. And when I'm saying slight, I mean less than 1% underperformance relative to other years. The rationale is really markets dislike uncertainty and change is almost by definition uncertainty, right? So who takes the, the big seat, uh, you know, in the, in the executive branch? Um, when it comes to who fills that seat, and now I'm just talking about markets, I'm not talking about political views or uh, other important social issues, um, markets, frankly, again, they dislike uncertainty. So the best outcome for markets is one party controls the executive branch, the other party controls the legislative branch, and that minimizes the opportunity for material change, unexpected change, say, totally new tax policy or totally new uh, uh, monetary uh, or fiscal regime, right? So it, it, it removes some of those variables. Now, if it's red and blue or blue and red, there's really not uh, all that much material difference, again, with just market outcomes. Um, so you know, could it be a little bit more bumpy because it's an election year? Absolutely. Um, but is it like all that predictive? Uh, certainly not. And then by the way, predicting elections, like it's hard enough to get markets right. Uh, you know, ask any pollster uh, about Trump's 2016 election and they would tell you, you know, it takes a little bit of humility to try to predict elections as well. So, you know, we're certainly not in that game. Yep. Thanks, Brad. A couple more questions came in. Uh, one about small caps and just summarizing it. It's a, um, there's higher volatility in small caps. And so, and, and our response to that is, yes, we agree. There is higher volatility in small caps and therefore it makes up a small percentage of the U.S. equity allocation. So we still recommend the majority of one's equity allocation be in large cap stocks, but they just have some exposure to small cap stocks, um, as opposed to, say, putting your entire U.S. equity allocation into the S&P 500, so you'd have no exposure. So uh, the minority, but have some exposure to small caps, because one of the reasons being 
uh, there is more risk there. Um, and then could could be a similar response to the Middle East conflicts. What are the thoughts on the decline of the dollar and BRICS? So, uh, you know, the, the direction of the dollar, um, you know, one kind of matters what you're comparing it to, right? Are we comparing it to the euro, the yen, or just uh, the dollar in aggregate, or maybe just versus Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, you know, the, the BRIC cohort? Um, you know, all equal, the direction of the dollar is probably most dependent on relative rates, right? And so if, if interest rates are high in one country and low in another, uh, the strength of that currency tends to be higher. And inflation. Inflation is a very important component of, of uh, you know, the potential strength or weakness of the dollar. Uh, and then probably thirdly, you would have, um, you know, some kind of uh, political and policy components in there. Um, you know, the globe has been enjoying moderating inflation uh, post-COVID, right? So obviously we had a huge spike. Uh, some of that, you know, the dirty word of transitory, the Fed re really regretted using that word, but ultimately it proved to be correct, uh, you know, with supply shocks and, and anomalous things that you wouldn't expect to be a repeat. Some of that more structural. Um, but the U.S. has been ahead of the curve in falling inflation, uh, you know, especially relative, you know, e even to Europe, uh, but even other parts of Europe, so Latin America or uh, parts of Asia. Um, so all else equal is a really big and broad statement. Um, that would mean that the dollar could actually show some weakness in 2024. Now, again, currencies ebb and flow. That's not necessarily it's it's not a it's not a bad thing. Um, the dollar has been extraordinarily strong since really since 2008 or end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Um, you know, so all else equal, if you saw some dollar weakness, that would actually disproportionately benefit uh, you know uh, investments outside of the United States, so international equity, emerging market equity, etc. But that's a pretty convoluted, you know, really depends on what currency you're comparing it to. But in general, you'd say there's potential for dollar weakness in the forecast. Well, good answer. I think with that, we'll conclude today's 2024 market outlook. Thank you, Brad. Uh, we appreciate you joining and, and sharing uh, your insights. And thank you to our participants for joining and for our clients for your loyalty to Heritage. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. There has not been and will not be any compensation exchanged between Heritage Financial Services and podcast guests or recommended resources.